Flash forward, the festival nobody's talking about, falling a response to rising, in particular the ideas that didn't quite get off the ground, and Dr. J.D. O'Regan joins us from the University of Sydney to speak about plagiarism and the rising number of people suing other artists to get some money. Well, well, welcome again, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, cats and dogs, however you identify, chickles and chickas. It is I, Mikey Carl, your host of Hit Different, joined by Marcus Teague. Marcus, say something, please. Hello, Mikey. Thank you very much. Who else would you like to say hello to? I'd like to say hello to J.D. O'Regan. J.D. O'Regan. Is that the musicologist and lecturer in contemporary music from the Sydney Conservatorium of Music and the University of Sydney? I think it might be. Hi, fellas. How are you? Great. Feeling your big, smiley energy this morning, J.D. I like it. (laughs) Melbourne needs smiles right now, so thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, I'm sending lots of smiles and love to Melbourne right now. Thank you, thank you. It's Sydney and Melbourne, we were always giving each other nothing but good vibes. Good God. <laughs> like I remember mentioning a week ago there was no practically no COVID in Australia, how things change. So we'll see how we're gonna ride this one out. But today on Hit Different, we are gonna tackle, we're gonna discuss three topics. First topic being Flash Four, the City of Melbourne project where artists and musicians are getting paid a lot of money, which is freaking awesome to do uh, a record and also put on uh, a concert in a lame way, but nobody's talking about it. Nobody knows about it. What the hell's going on? Marcus, you'll be picking the ball up or the baton, as it were, from me. Falling Festival is a festival, a cabal of rejected artists who applied for the Rising Festival um, and didn't didn't make it. How many Didn't artists? make the cut. I think it's 1,130, roughly, and four were picked for the Rising Festival. And they're putting on a little night to essentially read out all their rejected proposals for the festival as a way of reclaiming their ideas, their creative souls. Uh, So we're going to talk about that a little bit and what it means to take ownership of a rejected idea. Mm, And whether these mistakes and rejected ideas can bear fruit, as it were. The third thing we're going to be chatting with, with, with JD, this is why we've brought in the heavy hitter here, is the Childish Gambino is being sued for alleged copyright infringement with the rapper Kid Wes, that's K-I-D-D-W-E-S, just one S, saying the Grammy-winning hit This Is America was lifted from his track Made in America. And what happens now where everyone seems to be getting lit- litigy with it? Um, sorry, everybody. <laughs> Will Smith is on the phone. <laughs> Delete! <laughs> It worked out better in my mind. So we're going to talk about that with with JD. You can be able to weigh in on all things copyright infringement and whether these things can actually, you know, have a benefit for artists or whether it's going to be completely negative and everybody's going to be suing everybody for copying everybody. So there you go. We can also sort of talk about the whole talent borrows genius steals line, which I think Tarantino is quite proud of and He's made a whole career out of it, as great as he is. Right, let's get into things. Hear a little bit of music. Flash forward. Flash forward to right now as I speak into your ear there, lovely person of the internet. 
The city of Melbourne are doing this project where they're paying people, I'm just going to say it up front because it hasn't been released yet, $20,000 each to each artist for being part of Flash Forward. The musicians get to uh, make a record, an LP or an EP, and that is printed up, I believe, on vinyl from our friends at Program Records. Quick fact check there. So they get to own this thing forever. They get all the proceeds from this art and also we put on a concert in a laneway. Did I mention they get $20,000? They get $20,000. This is something my friends at City Melbourne didn't want me to, to say unless I got that confirmed by artists, which I have, which is great. So why is nobody talking about this quite amazing thing? Is it because of rising, Marcus? Is it because they're terrible at doing PR? We need to be talking about it. We need people to come to these shows when they actually happen. Well, I wonder if some of the artists are a little nervous there's still that thing in the music industry, I think, about um, feeling a little uncomfortable discussing being bestowed grants mm-hmm. and or not free money because obviously artists do a lot of work behind the scenes to mm-hmm. get to the point where they're in that position to receive uh, a little leg up. Um, but I think it's exciting that especially a lot of artists who aren't necessarily household names, mm. are certainly not household names no, in many instances, many instances. Dr. JD just quickly, The Amplified Elephants, Bacchus Harsh, uh, who else we've got? Nate Lust, any of these ringing any bells? There's a few on here, but many that I actually don't know, which is kind of exciting that a bunch of of up and coming and new artists are going to get a really great opportunity that I think will have a lot of flow on effects for them, you know, hopefully in the future too, to be able to make a record and press it on vinyl and Mm -hmm. do a cool gig. I mean, that's a really a dream come true. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's incredible to have that kind of money put behind somebody, maybe at towards the beginning of their career not saying that you know these artists haven't already been working exceptionally hard but it's it's really hard to go from that sort of early stage of your career to that sort of next sort of mid-level part of your career and and this seems to be something that could definitely help lots of these artists actually make that next big step i think yeah mindy meng wang mojo my disco jala these kind of artists hate rock they're also involved as well so they're sort of you know at a more established level obviously they didn't get to mm. tour any any time soon or they, they, they didn't get to tour all of 2020 which is where they'll make mo- most of their money as well yeah. so yeah it's a, it's a good point you make that from this embryonic phase of your career how do you get to that next level and saying you have been part of flash forward once this all thing this is all said and done will be a great thing to have, a, you know, a great arrow in your quiver, a great part of your resume. June 18 is going to be the first date. I wish I'd heard of it um, before I actually sort of started talking to you both. Like it's such a great project. It's so surprising there hasn't been enough press about it. Mm. I think Sydney has had a few sort of similar things go on. I think one of the interesting things about Flash Forward is that, yes, the artists are getting paid handsomely, which is great, and they get to make a record in a lot of instances which is also great because it means that the project has longevity past just the mm-hmm. the few weeks that it's on and we should say also that it's a festival designed for people to discover part that's part mm. of its mo which is that people are supposed to walk around the city and go holy shit look at that what's what's going on there as opposed to being sort of a series of gigs where you're trying to get people through the door and all that and so on but i suppose the interesting thing is that it's a government initiative and especially with government government initiatives, sometimes the rules and restrictions around them can be difficult in terms of promo and press and people d- discovering it. And we have wondered if that's one of the issues with Flash Forward in that how people are able to talk about it is mi- has perhaps hamstrung its uh, 
ability to reach the you know the widest audience possible and I guess we yeah we're going to ask you about Great Southern Nights and how that rolled out in Sydney in in terms of another government initiative that was designed to get people back seeing live music and to support musicians in Sydney and and around Blue Mountain Central Coast Country New South Wales Hunter Valley North Coast like it was right around the region did that feel like it worked and did it excite music fans or did it feel like sort of ticking of the boxes in from a political point of view I mean maybe it's a bit of both but I actually participated in a few of the Great Southern Nights shows myself my general experience and I also went to a number of those shows is that everybody was so excited like the like punters audience members the bands because they hadn't played in so long and you know Sydney was in a very good position at that particular point and you know poor lovely Melbourne was still really struggling um with COVID restrictions and stuff so there was a feeling at least in Sydney and certainly the gigs that I was at how fortunate we were there was like a lot of discussion about gosh can you believe we're doing this aren't we so lucky like everyone was so excited there was heaps of applause and clapping even though we couldn't we couldn't stand up with a drink in our hands which was I think a bit tough a lot of venue owners were just constantly saying sir can you sit down (laughs) ma'am can you sit down but um you know that aside there was I think such a feeling of gratefulness and acceptance and a lot of love in the room because they had been without live music for such a long time and I think they realized you know for the musicians how much this meant to be able to go and be in a venue again so I mean on that level I think it was really great and I I I thought the amount of different artists that were performing as part of Great Southern Nights was really great so I'm a, a lecturer at the Sydney Conservatorium a number of my students were playing shows that play all different kinds of music and also in those regional spaces too so it wasn't just you know, the inner west of Sydney, where a lot of gigs sort of happen, it was actually really kind of inclusive in that way, and that it spread out, you know, beyond Sydney, which was really great. I mean, there, I guess, in some ways, there is a bit of box ticking, I think, because of how neglected the the music industry and live music was during, you know, most of COVID, most of the hard part of COVID in 2020. So there might have been a bit of like, uh oh, we need to make up for this. This was a project that was paying musicians a good you know a decent amount of money to actually put on some shows so I think after such a long time that was actually pretty exciting in some ways it's almost very Melbourne versus Sydney isn't it like Sydney puts it on and it's yeah. all bells and whistles and everyone's very excited and lots of media and then in <laughs> Melbourne it's like yeah just come to a couple of laneways you'll figure it out <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's very all good. good don't worry about it we'll just yeah. keep it on the down low it's not cool to be yeah, what, you know, oh in your God. face about it you've got to be cool enough to know which laneway to go that's to. how we roll in Melbourne yeah maybe you didn't see it it was probably better because you weren't there what the My hell least favorite part of Melbourne <laughs> god bless uh just looking now some of the stuff online looks like it's gonna be great Taylor Art Versus Corinne, Taylor Brockman is a visual artist, creates striking human characters and animals with a bold color palette. Corinne, I've seen a few, uh, Corinne, I've seen it play a few times as well. Amazing kind of next level electronic synths, this kind of like the knife meets, I don't know, putting your head in a blender, but actually really, really enjoying it kind of vibe. <laughs> she's, she's incredible. So mm-hmm. I think once this thing's up and running, and once people are talking about it and once Rising Festival sort of, you know, can move aside or, you know, hopefully rolls out really, really well and everyone goes to Rising and gets more and more excited about attending live music, it's all going to work out nicely. A point Marcus made and, and something I've heard as well is that with the City of Melbourne, have a guest, Dr. JD, have a guest who is the only person who's allowed to comment on these kind of events from within the City of Melbourne. Oh. So it's not the curator. Gosh. 
Okay. Yeah, it's. I mean, the artist may, if, if they're asked to, it's the mayor. The mayor is the only person who can make. Oh, the mayor. I know, all the way to the oh. top, Sally. It is all the way to the top. This goes all the way to City really? Hall. That's that's it. All the way. <laughs> oh my god! Really? Well, I know that. Um, some of the places I write for have tried to do articles about some of the events the city of Melbourne are, are putting on, and it's always very difficult because essentially the people that sort of stitch it together are, and those best in the know mm. aren't allowed to talk about it. It's, uh, I guess it's a bit of a political football, which is, on one hand, of course it's awesome that these artists are getting supported and getting cash and get doing gigs and all that sort of stuff, but it can be disappointing to know that there's such a... You can't such, talk about the experience. You can't talk about it. And if a tree can't. falls in a laneway and no one's there to clap it. <laughs> if no one's I there know. to get a coffee. If no one's there to do one hand cla- like, clapping yeah. a coffee. Okay, we're too far. It's like you've got this nice relationship, but that you can't be official about it. You won't make it Facebook official. No one knows that you're dating and you want to be excited about it mm. and post a cute selfie or something and, you know, you got to hide it, away, <laughs> hide it away. That's so weird. No, especially now when we're finally... We're, Surely this is the time we, we've come out of our cocoons and we're all going to be beautiful butterflies yeah. together. Uh, he says, yes. <laughs> refreshing the age <laughs> website every 10 minutes to see what's going on. Yeah. Wow. Oh um, yeah, okay. Well, that, was, that was a good one, folks. So I, think we, uh, I think we talked about that. Definitely not talking about it in a, in a hater kind of way either. We want, this, we want Flash Forward to be, no. to be massive and we want everyone to go along. And you know, if you can see Hate Rock in a lame way, well, my disco in a lane way, it's swaying along and getting down to some, you know, some math, some polymath rock, then fucking have it. Very good. Falling Festival is a festival that has been put on in, I was going to say the wake of Rising, but it's actually happening before Rising in Melbourne. Uh, for people who don't know, Rising in Melbourne is a large scale art and music and all things parties event affair which is uh replacing essentially white night in melbourne which was a big deal um for the last i think four or so years it's got a bunch of people behind it which have come from dark mofo and they're bringing a lot of their talent for putting on some really interesting performances and yeah reviving really interesting spaces and curating a really eclectic mix of stuff um but at the start of the festival they asked people to essentially apply to be part of the festival and of course not all those people get selected so a cabal of people are putting on a night to respond to all the rejected uh, applications there were around 1130 people who applied for rising and only four from that group were picked or I shouldn't say people four projects from that group were picked and so there's an event on to honor all the rejected ideas and I guess the question is, is there value in honouring rejected ideas? Is there, is there value in reviving mistakes, owning failure, being wrong and being right talking about it? I think absolutely there is. And if you can make some, some great piece of art almost with a chip on your shoulder, come, it occurs to me that Methyl Ethel with their third record when I got signed to 4AD, they sent the demos to 4AD and they sort of sent them back going, guys, where are the singles? And uh, then Jake Webb, the uh, the guy, the lead singer, and said he does everything in the band. He wrote a song called Scream Hole. And that, he said that was his fuck you song, his fuck you to the label. They're no longer with the label. They actually got dropped after that record, even though it did really well. 
did really well in Australia and, you know, sort of did okay overseas. I think it was a bit harsh that they got dropped. However, he did, I think it was a great thing for the label to come back and ask for more singles and sort of more sort of catchier mm-hmm. songs because what he did is he came back with four more songs, which were all bangers. And so he yeah, sort of when you're pushed into a corner, you know, you're, all right, like a, like a, you know, you need to respond with something pretty strong, strongly. Dr. JD, your students, I'm sure, have stories of getting rejected uh, when they apply for grants. What can you sort of, can you you'd be able to speak to this, I'm sure? Yeah, and not just students, staff too. Um, it, that's just part of, I think, part of the process. There's only, you know, so many opportunities and there's obviously way more projects and people who are vying for those opportunities. But I actually really love this um, this concept because I don't think we acknowledge the failures in life enough I think that's a really normal part of being a person in the world like Mm. beyond music and I feel like I mean sometimes with our a lot of our lives being on social media and everything is quite perfect and we mostly only talk about the good stuff that happens Mm -hmm. this is a really beautiful opportunity to acknowledge the very human experience of just missing out on something that you really cared about or were looking forward to or very hopeful about and so the idea of getting all these people in a room it's almost like a little therapy session um, Mm. of you know going you're not alone we have great ideas too and you know we missed out as well why don't we how can we support each other in it and i actually think that's a really quite a beautiful thing to to do because i feel like it's an experience that everybody has in their life beyond music could be a job it could be a relationship it could be whatever it is that sort of not everything goes perfectly well and and kind of acknowledge that acknowledging that is um yeah, I think a really positive thing. And the sort of, yeah, it goes the other way from all the image crafting that we currently are seeing online. I was going to ask you, Marcus, as as an artist, a single twin, as a singer-songwriter, have you applied for grants in the past and felt totally bummed when you didn't get them? I've never applied for grants because if you don't apply, you don't get rejected. <laughs> and so you always win. <laughs> but <Perfect>. truthfully, <laughs> it ties into what we were just talking about where Obviously, owning mistakes and talking about rejection is, has a real vulnerability to it. And being vulnerable is is a part of any great art. And investigating yeah. that so, sort of stuff and interrogating why it makes mm. you feel so uncomfortable, yeah. you know, is a, is a very powerful force if you could really harness it and look at it. And I wonder if, I mean, being vulnerable is and, and making mistakes, a lot of those examples littered throughout music history have often become sort of totem poles or really important works of art once they've come to light. Yeah. I'm, like one of the things I was thinking about earlier was the Jai Poles demos, the who oh, yep. someone leaked on Bandcamp and it sort of became this cult. BTSU. Yes. Yeah, I still play that track all the time. And became, it was never kind of intended for release and all of a sudden it becomes... That's why it says demo, BTSU demo. <laughs> I never knew that. <laughs> yeah. And that's why, and it becomes part of this myth making, I suppose. But it's also a dangerous yeah. space because if you get defined by that, and you're like, "Oh no!" But it was supposed to have bells and whistles and an orchestral choir and all these backing vocals. But that's not what people love about it. Then that that can be exciting. So I suppose yeah. it's about that currency of language. But also yes. on that, JD, I know that you've done a lot of work, even papers on the Beach Boys, and I have, yeah. And obviously, Smile was one of their big records. Yes. 
which was, I was just thinking of that. hidden and lost for such a long time and is now considered, you know, one of their great works. It's such an interesting record in some ways because it was, I think, one of the great myths of the history of pop music in that there were all these sort of bits and pieces of master tapes and some of those uh, songs that were supposed to be on Smile ended up on other records like Smiley Smile and Surf's Up and, and everything. So we had an idea of what that record was going to be like and there was a real history of fans piecing together their own versions. So people would like swap tapes of their version of what Smile was supposed to be right up until, you know, the the version um, in the 2000s was released. So it's like, yeah, I feel like fans had a part of that history and trying to make that record a reality until it finally was, which was pretty cool. I guess in that instance also, it's then the fans bestowing sort of a critical value on that. And then that's rather the artist going, I've made my masterwork. Everyone must listen to this. It's fantastic. An artist being yeah. being unsure about it and then almost the fans yes. coming to the rescue and saying, no, this is awesome. That's definitely the case, yeah. In some ways, it switches the, the balance of the artist kind of being the the curator of mm. what's in, what's important to them and the, the power that their music has it puts puts that value yeah. in the fans hands to go no this this is really meaningful yeah because it becomes part of their history and their life too you know those those songs take on a you know a quality of a soundtrack of of their experience and and talking with other fans and stuff it's uh, the story of smiles a really beautiful one i think mm. there's two records that come to mind Weezer's pinkerton and nine inch nails the fragile yeah. which both when they came out didn't do well at all they were kind of they both bombed, yeah. and then I was listening to a Trent Reznor podcast the other day, and he said, you know, ten years later, everyone's talking about the fragile. <laughs> so I was ahead of my time. <laughs> of course, the, the record label were, were pretty unhappy at the, at the time when he's just like, oh, look at the sales yeah. compared, and you know, the whole thing is once you get hot, you know, you can easily get cold. If you stay warm, this is what Marcus is so good at. It's why he's never applied for grace. He's always stayed warm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, once you get hot, you can you know you can cool off, and everybody sees that happen. Um, but to go back to the, yeah. the original point, you know, Rivers Cuomo, however you say his name, when he put out Pinkerton, he thought it was an incredible record. And it is an incredible record, but a lot of people were expecting another blue album and not something sort of so melancholic and sort of, you know, ang- angular, uh, for want of a better term. So it's an interesting one. And just uh, as a side note, talking about, you know, when music's finished and, and doing the, the best job you can, when Beck put out Loser, everyone was applauding how lo-fi it was and how sort of slacker yeah. etc and he was asked about it and he said i tried to make loser as hi-fi as i possibly could that's so <laughs> he wasn't intending to make this like you know sludgy cool ass alt rock jd is there a way yeah. that you try and talk to your students about ascribing value to both what they're doing and the music that you're talking about yeah, I guess we do talk about that sort of stuff most. So I do a bunch of different classes, I guess. Some are kind of in the studio and are about songwriting and performance and stuff. And then others are more about music analysis or pop music history, which is, you know, a lot of where my heart is. Um, but yeah, I guess we we try to, I mean, I, I sort of hate the idea of like university not being like, quote unquote, the real world, um, TM. Um, because it's like, oh no, if I'm not in the real world, where do I exist? Anyway, um, <laughs> but we do tend to talk about, um, I talk about these things when we sort of discuss other artists or we, you know, we often, ref- uh, often get students to reflect on 
you know, people they admire and, and, and some of their choices and how they could maybe, you know, learn from those or employ some of those skills. Like, I just think that kind of critical thinking um, is honestly one of the most important parts of being a student at university, no matter what you study, you know, you can learn the tools and you can learn, you know, some skills. But I think at the end of the, the day, what the most important thing is, is actually being a critical and thoughtful thinker in the world. And so I think by reflecting on those things like critical value and um, cultural capital and, you know, in their own experiences and in the experiences of maybe artists they admire, I think that is an incredibly powerful tool. Um, you know, for when they're ready to launch, even though many of them have sort of already launched as well. Yeah, I think those discussions are incredibly powerful at such a young age. I wish I'd been able to have them, you know, when I was around that that time. So I could have had a, you know, more thoughtful and wide reaching, you know, cultural context for, where, you know, where I was making my own music. Yeah, cultural capital and cultural context is, is essentially, I guess, that it almost is the most valuable thing, isn't it? Like we can talk about where, mm-hmm. where a record lands in the charts or yep. how something is considered through history, but if it doesn't mean anything to you, then it doesn't mean anything because yeah. obviously music is subjective, like it's trying to rate smoke. Who knows? Yes. Like every, <laughs> yeah. Everyone has different ideas about what's good and bad and therefore how valuable it is, which must be a yeah. tricky thing to get down on the page or base a PhD around or talk to your students about? Yeah, I think so too. I mean, discussions I find of cultural capital often come up when we talk about the idea of the guilty pleasure, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that is all about cultural capital. Like, I don't want to be seen enjoying this music because of what that may say about me. Like, I often think there's a really great book by um, a music writer, Carl Wilson, and it's in that 33 and a third series. And he his book is about a Celine Dion record and it's called A Journey to the End of Taste. And that re- that book I often talk about, I often reference when I talk about this stuff with my students because he does this you know, great experiment where he tries to listen to Celine Dion in his apartment knowing that everybody else can hear because um, the walls are so thin. And he said, I don't mind them hearing me argue or have sex or anything. What I worry about is they're hearing me listen to Celine Dion. He sets this kind of goal for himself to see how high he can pull the volume before he gets too embarrassed to turn it down and he goes through this kind of metamorphosis through this book which is really quite beautiful but yeah I think you know how well something does it sort of there is a bit of that sort of especially in you know sort of top 40 pop about the cheese factor or you know guilty the idea of the guilty pleasure so I think that's always an interesting one too. Again that's about context isn't it I've read that book also Mm -hmm. and one thing I remember is how Celine and her work to (laughs) parentheses, <laughs> came yeah. out of yeah. of a very parochial French-speaking Canada, which at the, t- yes. at the time, the art valued drama and sort of over-emoting yeah. and that sort of stuff. So, so Wesley... He talks about schmaltz and stuff. Exactly. Too, right? Yeah. And talked about schmaltz as in being a powerful art form, which I'd never really considered yeah. before. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, in some ways, Celine wasn't like she was representing truly who she was, which is almost kind of like, you could argue it was a bit punk at at the time. She was- Yes. Yep, good point. I love those arguments too that flip things like that. It makes me happy. If she's singing her truth, then who are we to say, no, no, it's not as cool as, 
you know, this new Arctic Monkeys record. I used to go through a Guantanamo Bay-esque torture when I worked at Sanity Fountain Gate, and we would have to play the Celine Dion album on repeat and see how many units we could shift in an afternoon. And sometimes 60, 70 records just flying out the door. Don't say what you're about to say. No, 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 no. <laughs> Think twice is actually a banger. <laughs> I hate to say it, but it is. Did you learn about the power of love, though? Uh, just, was it just all coming back to you now? It's all coming, yeah, this yeah. is the thing. Like At the time, I fucking hated it. And now, if it came on, <laughs> I would sing along. I would sing the shit out of it in my car, just knowing that I've I've gone through the pain. Tragedy plus time is comedy, and I would enjoy that Absolutely. very, very much. <laughs> I can tell you a, a quick story about um, I did a keynote with Amanda Palmer, much maligned, much celebrated cool. um, artist slash iconoclast from America and I on stage gave her some constructive criticism about her art where I said I was in the car and this is how I, I, I hate to say it but I kind of I butted her up I said I was in the car in Sydney and a cover of Idiotech came on it was just you and a ukulele and I just I nearly crashed the car and I wasn't even driving it was that good I had to find out who it was and I found out it was Amanda Palmer doing Idiotech by Radiohead conversely I had to review your last record Amanda and there was a song called Map of Tasmania on it and I gave it one star and said in a line, sounds like Amanda wants a visa. And she was kind of flabbergasted and said, what, what did you like about the record? And I said, uh, you really want to know? She said, yeah. This is in front of 400 people in an amphitheater. I said, it just felt empty. She goes, what do you mean? Like the production was hollow. She goes, yeah, the production wasn't great. <laughs> so she actually was pretty cool about it. And then at the end, she did this you know, seven-minute ukulele song. And I said, you want me to fuck off the stage? Uh, wait. She goes, no, I just want you to like my record. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. It was very, oh was very honest. These honest chats with artists. Would you call that constructive criticism? I think it was. Yeah, I can. It completely was. And yeah, you know, she's had an interesting career since. True. <laughs> yep. Awesome. That was a very, very good, my friends. Welcome back, my friends, to Hit Different. We've come to the climax of this week's episode where we've got Dr. J.D. O'Regan from the University of New South Wales weighing in beautifully on previous subjects. And now we get to her specialty subject. This is a mastermind where she gets to throw down. Childish Gambino is being sued for alleged copyright infringement with the rapper Kid Wes, never heard of him, saying the Grammy-winning hit This Is America was lifted from his track Made in America. One of the things he notes here, my friends, is the similarities in melodic contour, rhythmic triplet flow in each performance, and the lines Made in America, and of course This Is America, are likely not coincidences. This is in the courts now. We're going to see how all this plays out. Dr. J.D., you're a bit of an expert in this area. What's your take? I mean, there's been a lot of these kinds of cases coming up. I think with hip-hop it's particularly difficult because so much of it is spoken and it's like can you copyright the sound of speech or the mm. rhythm of speech in that sort of way. So I'll be, I'm actually very curious to see how this one how this one turns out because the, uh, the artist that's suing was this was a song that I wasn't necessarily aware of but I certainly was of Childish Gambino so yeah I'm kind of curious how this one will, will work out in in the courts actually so I'm kind of keeping an eye on this one there was an article on The Economist that discussed it and there's a there's a quote in yes. there there's a quote in there from James Janowitz who's a lawyer who actually in 1976 organized a courtroom piano rendition to show that George Harrison had copied My Sweet Lord from another work which uh, yeah that's a famous one seems very theatrical uh, to think about rolling an upright piano to a courtroom but <laughs> but 
His quote was, these days music is less and less about melody, which was traditionally the bedrock of why two songs were judged to be impermissibly similar. And today he says melody takes a backseat to elements such as beat and subject matter, which are harder to claim as original, which is the crux, I think, of, of, of this case, isn't it, where they're, they're talking about flow, rhyming structure, beats. How do you say that the sound of a snare drum is ripping off the sound of another snare drum? Yeah, I think this is one of those incidences where the industry has not caught up with what music's actually doing right now. Because, I mean, like that Economist article said, which is a really fascinating one, so much of what of what makes a song sound the way it does is to do with its production and the way in which it was made. Even now, like, if, for example, in Australia with APRA, you register a song as, as you being the songwriter of, of the lyrics and the chord progression. So the melody and the chord progression and the lyrics, that's what makes a song. And it's mm. very similar in the United States with ASCAP or BMI, who are the, you know, performing rights um, associations in, say, the US or... And so it's still actually in that model of that old school singer songwriter of I'm going to sit at my piano and sit at my guitar and I'm going to write a song this way. However, you know, for a song like This Is America and for a lot of, say, modern pop music, that's not always how music is made these days. It actually uses the studio as the instrument. So the beats maybe come first and it's quite a collaborative process. So I feel like this is one of those incidences where like the industry hasn't quite caught up to actually what makes a song these days in a way that's quite different to say 40s with Tim Panelli in the 50s and 60s with say the Brill Building uh, songwriters. So yeah, I think there's a disconnect there that I, th- I think we're struggling to still get our head around a bit. Rewind to 2015 when Robin Thicke and Pharrell put mm. out Blurred Lines and what happened after that is, is uh, Marvin Gaye's estate sued for the similarities into Got to Give It Up, both bangers. Uh, interestingly, the senior litigation consultant, Tom Lofgren, he came up with this visual constellation of similarities between Williams and Thicke's blurred lines and Gay's got to give it up. He said after the fact, after they won $7.5 million for the Marvin Gaye estate, I believe the constellation chart was a powerful takeaway for the jurors. At least one of eight similar features appeared in virtually every measure of blurred lines. Was this sort of like, what's the word? So Dr. JD, did this defibrillate this thirst and this popula- the popularity of suing musicians for plagiarism. I don't think this is the one that sort of kicked it off. I think this is something that's been in popular music for a really long time from the 60s onwards. I think there's definitely examples. There was heaps that happened in the 90s as well. But what was very different about the blurred line situation is that it actually wasn't about melody. It wasn't necessarily about the chord progression or the lyric, as problematic as that song is, it was about the style. It was about the texture, the timbre, the sound of it. And what is different, I mean, and it does sound similar to the Marvin Gaye um, track, definitely, but it set this precedent of can you copyright a feel? Can you copyright a vibe or a, you know, I mean, there are stylistic things that make it sound like, you know, R&B music, uh, retro R&B music from the 70s. So, but but can that be something that's copyrightable or is that just a genre of music? So that was what was difficult, I think, about the Blurred Lines case is that it did set a precedent that could potentially be like, well, you guys wrote a punk song and I wrote a punk song and your punk song sounds like my punk song because it's got distorted guitars and it does, you know, this drum fill here. 
there's that sort of thing. I mean, I don't want to sort of, you know, pull the thread out of it and go, oh, this awful, awful stuff is going to happen in the future. But it just was a very interesting case musicologically. You know what I mean? It wasn't about the lyric or a melody. It was really about the whole, the, just the general feel and style of that music. I guess also it's almost music is the bystander in this argument and conversation mm. because really it's about money, isn't it? It's about suing people that are really successful because they must have money yeah. and so therefore other people want to try and get their money. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, one of the lines in that Economist article, it says, now that every track is online, it is harder for artists to use the defense that they had not heard the song they are accused of copying. Which is silly because no one's sitting around listening to every piece of music ever made and then trying to write songs. Exactly. But what that really yeah. translate as, translates as is that it means litigators can just go through Spotify and streaming services whether by algorithms or whatnot and match songs to others, which of course there's going to be because that's just the fundamental of, you know, how many keys and instruments humans have yes. access to. There's there's going to be double ups and try and find people to sue, especially famous ones. So I suppose the question is, number one, it's obviously about money, but is it also in the case of this kid Wes who is suing Childish Gambino, is suing a famous artist mm -hmm. a savvy marketing move, whether you win or not? Yeah, that's very interesting uh, to think about because, of course, I didn't know of that artist until it was connected to this court case. So maybe you're correct there in that way. But, I mean, it would be a very expensive way, I imagine, <laughs> to get some sort of recognition and that maybe they could probably spend that money on making a new record or <laughs> doing something more productive. But um, I think there's such a – there's a lot of feeling and, you know, very strong feelings about – uh, songwriting royalties because one it's one of the ways where musicians can actually make some money not just for them but even securing their family's future like the Marvin Gaye estate for example but also I think as songwriters you might feel you know those songs are very personal and so when when they're being taken it felt like somebody has taken that from them it can feel very very hurtful in a in you know very angry I guess sort of way and on the on the flip side I don't think any songwriter likes to have somebody say you've plagiarized like that's an awful feeling for both sides so I think there is quite a lot of big feelings around both sides of of you've stolen my work or you know being accused of having stolen somebody else's work as well so yeah one thing that's was really really sad actually was when on Spicks and Specs there was a question about uh, land down under, men at work. You guys probably know where I'm going with this. And then someone, a lawyer sitting at home, went, oh, that's a little similarity there to Kookaburra sits on the old gum tree. Anyway, Larrikin Entertainment, Larrikin Music Publishing took men at work to court and they won. They got 5% of all royalties of land down under. And then Greg Ham, the man who played flute, he ended up dying, uh, you know, largely because of this. He, he had an early death because he felt so sad about how this whole thing had played out, that someone had gone, you know, allegedly, well, not allegedly, but it was, a, it was a real cash grab after the fact. And I think that's, that's a really tragic sort of element to, to what to what this is, is someone someone can hear something and then years later they can play something vaguely similar and then get sued for it. I mean, what good comes out of that really? Yeah, it sort of feels like it's never over, is it? Like there could always be somebody coming for you in that sort of way. But mm. the, the down under, the land down under example is, 
yeah, a really, a really devastating one on a bunch of different levels, mm. I think, especially because of the death of Greg Ham. And I, I believe Colin Hay's father also passed during that time too, and it was thought that the stress was a contributor to his passing as well, which is, you know, devastating. Mm. Not good. It's also, it's interesting how it collapses time as well, isn't it? Like, mm. I mean, Kookaburra, the song was written in the 1930s. Men yeah. at Works, Land Down Under was in the 1980s. I mm. think 1980 it was. Mm-hmm. And then the lawsuit yeah. was brought in around the 2010s, I think it was. So 2010, all, yeah. All these things crossing over, it's it's interesting how we can almost go back and recontextualise what things meant and who lifted what. It recontextualises all these songs through time and it, it's now that everything's going to be forever available on the internet, it's slightly terrifying to think that something 50 years from now could be accused of ripping off you know, something that was made long well before that songwriter was born or had access to listening to or it it starts to defy the nature of expression and what people come up with. Is it the original cancel culture? I've gone gone too far. (laughs) If Iggy Pop was more litigious, he would have sued Jet, surely. It's a great point. Yes. With the land down under, the down under situation with with Kookaburra, I mean, I would refer to that as something like intertextuality, right? So it's sort of a knowing nod to another work of art. And I think in the video clip actually of Down Under, like he's sitting in a tree (laughs) playing his little flute part, right? Yeah, 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 you're right. There was a, there was sort of a loving nod to Australian history and childhood and, and that sort of stuff in the same way that say, Simon and Garfunkel say goo 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 in Mrs. Robinson as a bit of a little nod to the, you know, the Beatles and the Warriors. So it's like mm. this, that part of music, I think, has been, has been there for a really long time and it just seems very unlucky maybe that this, you know, the Spicks and Specs kind of put a... So when, when Karen O sings something like a phenomenon, you know, as a little nod to LL Cool J. That's a really great example. I just think that, that intertextually is, intertextuality is sort of part of you know, what musicians draw from, what they're inspired by, what their little nods are for. It's a part of their history as well. So I just, I always, personally, I always thought that that little kookaburra, you know, riff on the flute was was just a cheeky little nod. But um, it's a shame the light got shown so brightly on it unexpectedly and there was such a negative and quite difficult outcome. Reminds me of the, the joke in, I think, the film So I Married an Axe Murderer. What do you call 3,000 lawyers at the bottom of the ocean? A good start. Yep, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's Phil Hartman delivers that line. So what do you think, as we uh, round, round things up and tie things together uh, with a neat little bow, what do you think will happen with this Childish Gambino case and any predictions for the future of how this is all sort of going to play out in this realm? I feel like he's going to be okay, but I'm very curious to see how it turns out and how those decisions are made. There is actually a job description which is called a forensic musicologist, which is they're the kinds of people that consult on these cases, which is like dream job. I imagine them in a lab coat, very official <laughs> forensic musicologist. And I've done this on a couple of, uh, in a couple of situations before records have been released where I've had to listen and, and give an opinion on how close those songs are together before it's been released. And I think that's something that maybe has 
is going to be going on more and more to get that advice before things are released so that they feel covered. And there's also some examples quite recently. I think Taylor Swift had one with, mm, look what you made me do. I think where she preemptively credited Right Said Fred on that song, like didn't necessarily ask for permission, but already put their name on stuff because of the um, similarity in in the rhythm and the melody of that song. So, yeah, I think there's, um, I think people are being very careful. Uh, I think that's going to be the biggest change is that, that maybe getting advice before things are released is, is something that, you know, artists may look to do in the future. Do you think you're going to get more work from this and more people asking you, hey, can you have a listen to this, Dr. JD, before, you know? I maybe. It's pretty fun. <laughs> I'm kind of a bit of a nerd for this stuff, but yeah, I kind of love thinking about it. So it's actually a really lovely job, but it could be, you know, a job for lots of other people too, especially if it becomes more and more part of the process of releasing new music. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us, you bloody star. You were very, very oh, good. And uh, I feel best. much smarter being within your presence, even though you're in Sydney talking on a very oh. expensive microphone. <laughs> <laughs> It's a really long lead. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. J.D. O'Regan, joining us from University of Sydney. The takeaway quote, I think, for you is, can you copyright a feel? Great quote. Really, really enjoyed that. So thanks for being with us. Marcus, thanks for being here. We'll see you in two weeks. Listener, we'll see you next week. J.D., we'll hopefully see you in Melbourne. If there are no restrictions, come and visit us, please. Big love. Please subscribe. Tell all your friends about Hit Different. We're only just starting off. You know, we're the little guys. We're the underdogs here. And we'd love you to sort of get behind us and get around us. This uh, Speaking of long leads and long tails, I think a lot of what we're talking about hopefully is evergreen content and stuff you'll be able to listen to years down the track. This Childish Gambino case is still before the courts. Uh, next week, we have guests on. I can't tell you who they are because this is showbiz. Leave you wanting more. But all in all... Bloody nice to hear you and be with you. Thank you so much, listeners, and we'll see you next week. Bye.